Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Colleen Stan was born in 1956 and lived in Eugene, Oregon. In 1977, at the age of 20, she was hitchhiking from her home in Oregon to a friend's home in Northern California for a birthday party. A man by the name of Cameron Hooker picked Colleen up near Red Bluff, California. Colleen had been selective in who she would get in a vehicle with and felt safe because the man's wife, Janice, was in the passenger seat holding their baby. She had let two rides go before ultimately getting in the vehicle with the Hooker family. When they stopped at a gas station along the way, Colleen went to use the restroom when suddenly a voice in her head told her to run and never look back. But she ignored the thoughts and went back to the vehicle. When she came back, she found a makeshift BDSM headbox in the back seat that wasn't there before. She didn't know what it was and didn't ask the Hookers about it and they made no mention of it. Sometime later, Cameron stopped again in an isolated area and Janice got out with the infant boy. Cameron then threatened Colleen with a knife and subsequently handcuffed, gagged, blindfolded, and forced her into the box. The hookers drove back to their home and hung her from her wrist before removing the box and cutting her clothes off. Once nude, Cameron whipped her repeatedly while Janice watched. After he finished, the hookers had sex in front of Colleen. Janice, who had been abused by her family, had met Cameron when she was only 15 years old. As a result of the abuse, Janice was submissive and offered no resistance when Cameron introduced her to bondage and sadomasochism, even after he almost drowned her once during one of their sessions. Cameron's favorite game was to hang Janice by her wrist, completely nude, and hit her several times with a bullwhip. The Hookers married on January 18, 1975, at which time Cameron had already informed Janice that he intended to abduct a stranger and force her into sexual slavery. She was able to get him to agree to stop whipping her and only whip the slave so she could get pregnant and have children without danger. He also agreed that they would only have normal intercourse from that point on. Colleen was tortured and kept locked in a box 23 hours a day until she was given a contract and forced to sign herself into slavery for life in January 1978. In view from the box, propped up against her purse under the bed, was a photo of Marie Elizabeth Spenhake, a previous victim whose body was never found. She further stated that Hooker led her to believe that she was being watched by a large, powerful organization called The Company, which would painfully torture her and harm her family if she tried to escape. 
She subsequently became a slave, referred to as Kay, and was forced to call Hooker master and was not allowed to talk without permission. It's believed that Colleen developed Stockholm Syndrome, which is an emotional response and coping mechanism that a hostage can develop wherein they begin to identify closely with his or her captor and develop positive feelings towards their abuser. It's a phenomenon in which victims can develop loyalty, affection, and sympathy for a captor. Cameron reportedly wanted her to be like the female character in the 1954 French erotic novel, Story of O, where a young woman fashion photographer is taken by her love and subjected to various sexual and sadomasochistic acts. At some point, the Hooker family moved to a mobile home in Red Bluff with Colleen, where she was kept locked in wooden boxes under the couple's waterbed. In 1978, Janice gave birth to a second child on the waterbed above Colleen. Colleen said that her greatest fear was the company, which Hooker reinforced daily. To avoid painful punishments, she tried to comply with his commandments, which later led to her being allowed to go out to jog, work in the yard, care for the family's children in the home, and help him build bigger accommodations, like an underground dungeon, for more slaves. Even with an open door, neighbors, and a telephone, she made no attempt to escape for fear of the company. Surprisingly, four years into the seven-year ordeal, Colleen was actually allowed to visit her family by herself in 1981, but she did not tell them about her situation due to her fear of the possible consequences. Her family thought she was involved in a cult, and they did not want to pressure her, fearing she would stay away forever. The next day, she returned for a second visit with Cameron posing as her boyfriend. During her visit, a family member of hers took a picture of the couple smiling together. He then feared he had given her too much freedom and took her back to his mobile home where he locked her in the wooden box under his waterbed where she once again remained in the box 23 hours a day for the next three years. Bodily functions were dealt with by her using a bedpan which she positioned under herself with her feet. Hooker's children were told Kay had gone home, and once his children had gone to bed, he would take her out of the box to feed and torture her. She was reportedly not allowed to make any noise and had to lie still 23 hours at a time in the dark with little air to breathe. During the summers, the temperature in her box would rise to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In 1983, he finished building a pit under a shed on the property and moved the box there. It was then that Colleen was reintroduced to the children and neighbors and allowed to get a part-time job as a maid at a motel under the alias K Powers. She was also allowed to attend church services with Janice. He mentioned wanting Colleen to become his second wife and spoke of his intent to acquire new slaves and keep them in the pit with Colleen. This was a turning point for Janice. In mid-1984, Janice went to Colleen and informed her that Cameron was never part of the company that he had threatened her with. This led to Colleen giving details to her pastor who advised her to flee. She then went to a bus station and phoned Cameron to inform him that she was leaving him and then took a bus home. Three months later, Janice reported her husband to the police and informed them that he had kidnapped tortured, and murdered 19-year-old Marie Elizabeth Spenhake, who had disappeared on January 31, 1976. 
However, authorities were unable to locate Marie's remains, and due to the lack of physical proof, no murder charges were brought forth, but a trial took place in regards to Colleen's abduction, sexual assaults, and torture. At the start of the 1985 trial, Janice testified against her husband in exchange for full immunity as she was a previous victim of his as well. Janice confessed that, starting with their first date, she had also been tortured and brainwashed by Cameron and only survived by engaging in denial and compartmentalization. Janice told police she and Cameron were out driving when they saw a young woman walking along Mangrove Avenue in Chico, California. She later found out, by looking at the woman's identification, that she was Marie Spenhakey. Janice stated that they offered Marie a ride and she got in the car willingly. They drove her to her destination on Rio Linda Avenue and stopped to let her out, but as she was getting out of the car, Cameron grabbed her wrist and pulled her back in. They then took her home and kept her for about a day. Cameron hanged Marie from the rafters in his basement, shot her in the abdomen with a pellet gun, and then strangled her. He and Janice buried her body in a shallow grave near Lassen Volcanic National Park, which has never been located. At the time, the police suspected that Marie's live-in fiancé was the one responsible for her disappearance because the two of them had an argument just before she disappeared. In the end, he was sentenced to consecutive prison terms totaling 104 years for sexual assaults, kidnapping, and using a knife in the process. Originally ineligible for parole until 2023, he had his hearing date moved up seven years to 2015 by California's Elderly Parole Program. On April 16, 2015, his request for parole was denied, and he will be eligible for another hearing in 2030. However, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, California officials contacted Colleen and advised her that they were looking into possibly granting Hooker parole in March 2021. Instead of a parole hearing, authorities conducted a hearing in September 2021 to have him classified as a sexually violent predator, which would result in him being remanded to a mental institution rather than unleashed on society. As of May 2022, he is still behind bars with the possibility of soon being released to the public. After the trial, Colleen studied for an accounting degree and joined and volunteered for Reading Women's Refuge Center, an organization to help abused women. Janice reverted to her maiden name, Lashley, became a registered associate social worker, and has worked as a mental health professional. Both Janice and Colleen continue to live in California, but do not communicate with each other. In 2016, a movie was released titled Girl in the Box, which was based on the case. The movie was followed by a two-hour documentary called Colleen Stan, Girl in the Box. The case is also documented in the 1989 book Perfect Victim, The True Story of the Girl in the Box. There have been several songs and TV episodes written with this case in mind as well. On July 17, 2021, Colleen's ordeal was recounted by Colleen herself in the snapped, notorious episode, The Girl in the Box. There's also a show on the ID network titled Dangerous Persuasions that is narrated by Colleen and her family. Elizabeth Schoff was a 14-year-old girl described as smart and bubbly who had her entire life ahead of her. 
However, that would all change when a depraved madman would change the course of her life. On September 6, 2006, Elizabeth stepped off her school bus to walk just 200 yards to her home located on Leaning Tree Road in Lugoff, South Carolina. She was suddenly approached by a man that unknowingly to her had lived nearby and had been watching Elizabeth get off the school bus each day. He claimed to be a police officer while dressed in a homemade uniform and badge. He handcuffed her and concocted a phony marijuana charge before leading her deep into the woods for about an hour in circles in an attempt to disorient her. They eventually came upon a filthy, dank, and cramped underground bunker, which was actually located only a mile from her house and also near his trailer. I imagine by this point, she was terrified, realizing that not only was he not a police officer, but she may not survive whatever he had in mind in that bunker. She didn't know it at the time, but the man abducting her was none other than 36-year-old Vincent Filial, a sex offender and sociopathic fugitive who police had been attempting to track down for months after he molested a 12-year-old. Once underground, he stripped her down and placed a chain around her neck and repeatedly sexually assaulted her. He then shockingly placed explosives around her neck and warned her that it would explode if she tried to escape and that he would find her brother and hurt him too. Meanwhile, her parents reported her missing after she didn't show up from school. Police told her parents that she was likely a runaway, despite the fact that her parents were adamant that something bad had happened and she wouldn't have run away. The bunker she was being held captive in contained a homemade toilet, a propane tank for cooking, a small battery-operated TV, guns, pornography, a taser, and a bed where he abused her up to five times a day, and the water supply was from a nearby stagnant pond. The bunker also contained homemade grenades that had been made with gunpowder and pill bottles. Over the next 10 days, with the will to live, she began using reverse psychology on Filial. She attempted to relate to him by talking about things that interested him and pretending that they interested her too. He told her he loved her and she replied that she loved him too. She tried to make him believe that she was enjoying her predicament and his company and wanted to run away with him. Eventually, the torture was less violent and he started to let her go outside for fresh air where she would leave strands of her hair, hoping that search dogs could pick up her scent. On the 10th day, Elizabeth asked Filial if she could use his phone to play games. Once he fell asleep, Elizabeth texted her mother a message that read, Hi mom, it's Lizzie. I'm in a hole across from Charm Hill where the big trucks go in and out. There's a bomb. Call police. Police and U.S. Marshals were able to trace the phone number to a telephone tower near the underground bunker. Filial found out after watching the news that police were searching for the pair and heard helicopters above. Initially, he was infuriated until his anger turned to fear. He actually asked her what he should do, so she suggested he flee and get a head start on the police, who were fast approaching. He complied and left Elizabeth alone in the bunker. Shortly after he left, Elizabeth steadily screamed for help, hoping somebody somewhere would hear her. That's when Officer Dave Tomley heard her screams and came to her rescue. 
As police and helicopters searched for her captor, they discovered three other hidden bunkers, all of which were dug by Phil Yaw. He was finally tracked down after a woman called police to say that Phil Yaw had attempted to carjack her outside a pizza restaurant at approximately 2 a.m., a week and a half after he fled. Police apprehended him along Interstate 20, about five miles from his house, and found him armed with a pellet gun, a taser, night vision goggles, and a knife. Phil Yaw avoided trial and pleaded guilty to charges of kidnapping and 10 counts of criminal sexual conduct and was sentenced to 421 years and died in 2021 in prison. Elizabeth would later graduate from college and become a dental assistant before returning to college once again. Lisa McVeigh's mother was an addict who ended up living on the streets, forcing Lisa in and out of foster care. At the age of 14, she was forced to move in with her grandmother and her grandmother's boyfriend, Morris, in Tampa, Florida. Morris began both sexually and emotionally abusing Lisa for the next three years. At the age of 17, Lisa was working at Krispy Kreme and feeling hopeless and suicidal. Following her shift on November 3, 1984, Lisa hopped on her bicycle to head home. She had already decided that once she arrived home, she would carry out her plan to end her life and had already written her suicide note. But something would happen on her way home that was not only horrific, but would also change the course of her life. As she was pedaling home, a car appeared behind her and began honking their horn. But she ignored it and continued on. Suddenly, the car parked on the side of the road, grabbed her, and put a gun to her head, forcing her into his car. He quickly blindfolded and tied her up and assaulted her in his car. He then took her to his apartment, where he would repeatedly sexually assault her. Although just minutes earlier, Lisa wanted to no longer live, she suddenly was afraid to die and decided to fight for her life. She didn't know it at the time, but she had just been kidnapped by a serial killer who had killed at least 10 women in 1984 in Tampa, Florida. Lisa was able to block out the pain of his attacks, which she had learned growing up in an abusive home. She intentionally left fingerprints on several surfaces in his bathroom and her hairs under his bed to help police identify her in the event of her death. She lied about her name and age and said she was 19 and her name was Carol. Lisa was smart and decided to outwit the man and attempt to earn his trust using reverse psychology. He said that he had recently gone through a bitter breakup and wanted to get back at women. He appeared almost childlike, so she told him that she would have been proud to be his girlfriend and that he seemed like a decent man, just misunderstood, and she could be his secret girlfriend. She made up a story of being an only child and that her father was sick and needed her to take care of him. After 26 hours of torture, the man decided to drop her off in a secluded wooded area and said the only reason he didn't kill her is because her father needed her to take care of him. When Lisa was dropped off at 4.30 a.m. and removed her blindfold, she felt as if she had a second chance at life. When she went home and reported her brutal experience, her sorry, no-good grandmother and granny's boyfriend did not believe her. She was beaten and interrogated for five hours about her whereabouts until finally a phone call was made to the police. She had been able to get a glimpse of his face under her blindfold and gave the police a description of him and his car. 
Through her description of her captor, his vehicle, the route they took, and other details, police were able to track him down and arrest him 12 days later and even connect him to other crimes. During those 12 days, he had already kidnapped and murdered two more women. Before dropping her off, he had stopped at an ATM and Lisa could see that she was near a Howard Johnson's motel and a Quality Inn. After she went to police to report her abduction, investigators searched for an ATM near those two hotels. There was only one. They then had the bank give them a list of people who had made transactions that night at around the same time Lisa was released. There was only one, Bobby Joe Long. The seeds of Robert Long's capture were planted two weeks ago tonight with the abduction of 17-year-old Lisa Marie Rhodes as she bicycled home from her job at this North Florida Avenue donut shop. A Tampa police detective investigating the Rhodes case brought important information to the serial murder task force, information that tied a suspect to the killings for the first time. She also confided in the detective about what was happening at her home, leading to Morris's arrest. Lisa was removed from her grandmother's home and put in protective housing for young adults before ultimately going to live with her aunt and uncle. On September 23, 1985, Long pleaded guilty to his crimes against Lisa and to eight counts of first-degree murder, eight counts of kidnapping, and seven counts of sexual battery. He received life sentences on every count and sentenced to death for the murder of the two women. Long was born with an extra X chromosome, which results in excessive estrogen production, yielding some female traits such as breast development. He would be teased as a child for his large breast and would eventually undergo a breast reduction surgery when he was a teenager. He also suffered multiple head injuries as a child, resulting from different accidents. Long also had a dysfunctional relationship with his mother. He slept in her bed until he was a teenager and reportedly resented her multiple short-term boyfriends that she would bring home with her when returning home late at night after work. A few years prior to relocating to Tampa in 1983 to continue his reign of terror, he committed at least 50 rapes and became known as the classified ad rapist throughout other areas of Florida. As for Lisa, in 1999, she began working at the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office as a dispatcher and became a reserve deputy. She graduated the police academy and was deputized in 2004. She works in the same department that found and arrested her captor, specializing in combating sex crimes and working to protect children. She also works as a middle school resource officer and uses her story to teach students how to handle potentially dangerous situations without scarring them. She would eventually marry and now has the name of Lisa Noland. In April of 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis signed Bobby Joe Long's death warrant and he died by lethal injection the next month, 34 long years after the attack. Lisa was present wearing a t-shirt with the word long on the front and overdue on the back. She was hoping to lock eyes with him, but he never made contact. Mary Vincent was born in 1963 and was one of seven children living with her parents in Las Vegas, Nevada. When her parents were going through a messy divorce, Mary, an aspiring dancer, ran away from home. She lived on the streets and in a car with her boyfriend for a brief period in Sausalito, California until he was arrested. 
On September 29, 1978, 15-year-old Mary decided to hitchhike to her grandfather's home about 400 miles away in Berkeley, California. After staying with her grandfather for a while, Mary became homesick and decided to hitchhike back to Las Vegas. While hitchhiking back to Las Vegas, she was picked up outside of Modesto, California by an old man named Lawrence Singleton in his blue van. She had no idea that the man giving her a ride was an evil bastard that would make her life a living hell. He told her he needed to make a quick stop by his home near San Francisco to pick up some laundry as he was on his way to Reno. She agreed to help him carry the laundry to the van. Back in the van, she fell asleep while he drank liquor from a milk carton. When she woke up and saw they were going in the wrong direction, she ordered him to turn around, in which he did, and he replied it was a simple mistake. Later, he pulled off the freeway to relieve himself, and she stepped out to stretch her legs and tie her shoe. As she was tying her shoe, Singleton violently attacked her and put her in the van and sexually assaulted her. With her tied up in the van, he continued to drive until he arrived in Del Porto Canyon in Stanislaus County. He forced her to drink liquor and repeatedly assaulted her throughout the night until she passed out. When she came to the next morning, he ordered her to lie down on the edge of the road. As she begged to be freed, he coldly responded, You want to be free? I'll set you free. Then severed both of her arms with a hatchet. He then threw her off a 30-foot cliff and left her for dead inside a culvert. As Singleton sped off, he believed that he had killed Mary and that nobody would ever be able to find her. Miraculously, she didn't give up despite the urge to just go to sleep. A voice told her to get up and get help. With no hands, she somehow found the strength and determination to climb back up the cliff and trek three brutally painstaking miles in the desert to get help. She was finally able to flag down a newlywed couple on their honeymoon that had gotten lost and happened to see her off Interstate 5. It was likely a sight to see her naked, holding up her arms to slow the blood loss and keep the muscles from slipping out. Her appearance was likely the reason two men in a red convertible that were the first to see her slowed down, took a look at her, and then sped away. At this point, she had already lost half the blood in her body. In the hospital, she immediately worked with police to help identify and find her attacker. The composite sketch was so realistic that Singleton's neighbor recognized him and called police immediately. Mary began using prosthetic arms within two weeks after the attack. Mary would testify against Singleton in court, even though he had terrifyingly whispered to her that he would finish the job if it takes me the rest of my life. Under the law at the time, the judge could only give him 14 years in prison. The judge remarked, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. Eventually, Singleton concluded that he, rather than Mary, had been the victim of his own alcoholic haze and said he was mistreated in the courts and in the media. He was so adamant that Mary was at fault for his actions that he went as far as filing a complaint against her. He said he only did so to clear his name and that he actually felt bad for her. Mary won a civil judgment against him and was awarded $2.56 million, but did not receive the payment due to his inability to pay. After finishing high school in Las Vegas, she traveled around looking for a place to create her own life, which she found in Gig Harbor, Washington. 
Unbelievably, when California passed a work incentive law to cut prison overcrowding, Singleton was released early after just eight years. Mary and the public were understandably upset over the sentence, feeling it too short and unjust. This would lead to the passing of the Singleton Bill, which ceases the early release of criminals who used torture in their crime and allowed for a 25-to-life sentence as well. Mary began to fear that he would find her and finish the job and constantly had to look over her shoulder, resulting in her not wanting to leave home. Meanwhile, everywhere he went, angry crowds in Tampa's chapter of Guardian Angels led protest, screamed, and picketed. Armed guards had to move him from a hotel room after a crowd of 500 protesters rallied around. Authorities tried housing him multiple places, but each met with the same protest. The governor ordered that he be placed in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin for the duration of his one-year parole. Afraid to stay in one place too long, Mary went through a series of bodyguards and ended up living in a deserted gas station. After his parole ended, he was twice convicted of theft before he attacked and murdered a mother of three named Roxanne Hayes in 1997 in Tampa, and his horrible act was witnessed by a neighbor. Mary emerged from years of seclusion to talk about her ordeal and volunteered to testify against him at his new trial. Not only did she become a victim's advocate in support of victims' rights, she went on to deliver motivational speeches. She's always loved to tinker, so she customized her prosthetics by using spare parts from broken down refrigerators and old stereo systems, and even created a custom prosthetic for bowling. Among the changes in her life after the attack, she began a career in art where she works with chalk pastels to create pictures of powerfully upbeat women like female action figures. She later attended the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, married, and had two sons. With money tight, she began selling portraits to make ends meet. Singleton later died of cancer while on death row in 2001. Verna Sue White's story is truly incredible. She married her high school sweetheart and the couple had three children. But her husband became violent and addicted to drugs, which eventually resulted in Sue leaving him and taking their three children with her. She bought a house in Cherokee County, Georgia, and worked as a hairdresser. By the age of 38, her daughters were 7 and 18 years old, and her son was 17. One evening in 2006, she was out with a girlfriend when she ran into an old high school friend named Gerald Lee. Not only had Gerald been previously married to an old friend of Sue's, but he was also a former friend of her ex-husband, and the men used to do drugs together. After catching up a little, they went their separate ways. A couple months later, Sue noticed Gerald standing outside the salon where she worked. She walked out to talk to him, and he said he needed someone to talk to because things in his life had taken a turn for the worse. They talked for a bit, and she told him that he could call her if he ever needed to talk again. Strangely, he would show up unannounced at her house the next night. Initially, he was friendly, and the two spent time reminiscing about high school and about their lives, and Gerald even told her about how he was no longer involved in the illegal drugs. However, at some point, he confessed that he was wanting more than just a friendship with her. Sue explained she didn't feel the same way and said her life was solely focused on her children at the time. 
She also said it didn't feel right because he used to be married to her close friend and he knew her ex-husband very well. He agreed with her, but suddenly, when Sue's teenage daughter walked by and had an attitude with her mother, Gerald suddenly snapped and threatened to hit her daughter if she spoke to her mother that way again. Sue quickly asked Gerald to leave and he complied. His outburst made her believe that he wasn't actually free of drugs and instead was likely under the influence of meth again and she felt it best to cut all contact with him. But he began bombarding her with calls and texts about how they would be together one day, but she just wasn't having it, but Gerald was relentless. Over the next few months, Gerald would often show up at her home and knock on the door and then leave. Then on the evening of November 5th, 2006, all hell would break loose. Sue's seven-year-old daughter was on the computer building a bear online while Sue was doing dishes in the kitchen. As Sue went to look at the bear her daughter had made, she heard glass breaking and a man in a ski mask suddenly appeared holding a gun after breaking through her front door. He immediately put the gun to Sue's head and pulled the trigger, but thankfully it had jammed. He then began hitting her with the rifle and repeatedly stabbing her with a knife from her own kitchen and sexually assaulting her. Her daughter witnessed most of the attack before running to hide in a bathroom with her puppy. After his brutal attack on Sue, he ordered her to call her daughter into the room so he could attack her as well and gave sickening details of what he wanted to do with the little girl. Instead, Sue played dead and believed that the man was in fact Gerald. As he took off to find her daughter, Sue ran and got a knife herself and attacked the masked man. During the struggle, she removed his mask and saw Gerald's face. He began attacking her again with the butt of the rifle and even poured boiling hot tea on her. Sue stabbed him twice, but even this didn't seem to halter him much, likely from the meth in his system. While the two struggled over the knife, both Sue and Gerald continued to receive injuries, and Sue even held onto the blade to try to keep him from having control. Eventually, Gerald ran out of the back door and then returned to the front door that he had previously broken. But Sue was waiting for him, so he smashed a window and entered the house that way. Meanwhile, both were bleeding profusely, creating a crime scene that detectives would later say was bloodier than anything they'd ever seen before. In order to protect her daughter, she never gave up, and as he became weaker from his injuries, she was able to get in one more good attack. She ran to check on her daughter and found her hiding in the bathroom and ordered her to stay put. When she returned, the coward was trying to crawl out the front door. He eventually died as a result of his injuries. Sue had also received life-threatening injuries, and doctors didn't believe she'd live due to the amount of blood she had lost. But miraculously, she overcame all odds and survived. If you wish to view the crime scene photos, I will leave a link in the description, but I must warn you they are very graphic. After the attack, Sue was airlifted to Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, where she received over 250 stitches. She stated that it was her daughter that saved her life, because without the desire to save her, she may not have been as strong as she had been. Shockingly, despite all this, Children's Services removed her children from her custody for a period of time, citing that she had exposed them to bad people putting her children at risk. She eventually had to prove to the court that she was not a danger to her children. 
After spending a couple of months fighting and spending a lot of money, she was finally reunited with her children. But sadly, her daughter had to recover from the trauma without her mother by her side and even spent Christmas with strangers. Sue and her family quickly moved out of the house and into an apartment. I would like to finish this story off by saying, Sue, I salute you because you are one true badass. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.